0: Station with a pack on my back. I'm tired of transportation in the back of a hack. I love to hear the rhythm of the clickety clack and hear the lonesome whistle, see the smoke from the stack and pal around with Democratic fellas named Mac. So take me right back to the track, Jack. Choo choo, choo choo, jabogee, woo woo, woo woo, jabogee, choo choo, choo choo, jabogee. Take me right back to the track, Jack. And a You need some compensation to get back in the black. You take a morning paper from the top of the stack and read the situations from the front to the back. The only job that's open needs a man with a knife. So put it right back in the rack, Jack. Choo-choo, choo-choo-chiboogie, boo-boo, boo-boo-chiboogie, choo-choo, choo-choo-chiboogie. Choo-choo, take me right back to the track, Jack.
1: Hello, dear friends. Already, another edition of Alley Audio Vision, a series of talks with architect Ralph Alley. I'm Clark Yarrington with Frame Residential Design in Anchorage, Alaska. Ralph spent 30 years designing in Alaska beginning in 1959. In this episode, Ralph talks about going to D.C. in 1955 as a student representative to an AIA conference He met and interacted with superstar architects. Stops in New York and Chicago on the return trip further exposed him to influential architecture and ideas. We contemplate the fundamental question, who gets to decide which buildings live and which die? Ralph talks about others who were important in his early years in Anchorage, including his cowboy roommate Walt, his colleague Charles Blomfield, and Eddie Lum, an interior designer with a fabulous side hustle. Ralph name-drops some other local architects and others who assisted his development and enriched his Alaska experience. We discuss conceit. When is it useful and when is it in the way? Ralph took a boat trip from Whittier to Valdez before beginning on his first solo project in Anchorage, the six-sided house on Hillside, in order to clear his head and contemplate the project. I read a passage from Ralph's book about part of this journey, stumbling over the words only slightly. Once in Valdez, Ralph has a chance to contemplate kit houses and how they were useful in Alaska's brief construction season. Ralph Alley joins me from an undisclosed Southern California location. Hello, Ralph.
2: I am here once again, Clark.
1: Good to hear you. So at the um, this is our third episode already. at the conclusion of the second episode, you were talking about a trip that you made, a pilgrimage, I guess of sorts, with the Dean of the University of Idaho Architecture Department. And I think you wanted to go back and talk about another trip where you were exposed to a lot of work that would later influence you a few years before that, 1955, is that right?
2: Yes, in the first years when I was studying architecture, I was selected to represent the university students at a student AIA convention at the Octagon in Washington D.C. I had taken the train. Actually, there was a, another companion with me who's also studying architecture, but he was one year older than I. He later worked uh, in San Francisco for with Skinwings and Merrill for years, but. When I we got to Washington, D.C., it was a rather different kind of setting than I'm used to. I'm a Westerner. There, a lot of the students were from really East Coast schools, and they were very rather standoffish from uh, my kind of howdy way of going about knowing people. But at this convention, there were three notable people. Vincent Kling was... Uh, and Sybil Maholinagi, who with her husband were at the Bauhaus movement in uh, Germany, and Paul Rudolph. And the uh, AIA made sure that there were beer busts and we all kind of sat on the floor in circles and talked to each other, and that was really fascinating. I knew of Vincent Kling, I'd seen buildings he had done, but Paul Rudolph then was the one that kind of fascinated me as much as his he had kind of a concrete claw hammered brutalism and i which i didn't understand uh actually but uh, he did explain when that question came up during one of the beer busts was this i want to design beautiful ruins and I, that just knocked me out to think that you're trying to do living architecture and all you're thinking about is how beautiful they're going to be when they're not used.
1: He's taking more of a long-term view of the matter, I suppose you, you could say.
2: <laughs> so, I, it, it just amazed me that he would say that. He's a nice man, by the way, through the whole uh, several days we are there. But I have lived long enough where people have wanted to destroy these beautiful ruins that he designed. <laughs> because they they think they're ugly, and they're always in the way of other buildings that people want to build, and they're unusable, because they're concrete, they can't be repurposed. And uh, it's just interesting to watch that through the years, after hearing him talk about his uh, concrete buildings. And if you have a chance, Clark, you should look them up and you'll know what I'm uh, driving at. Uh, they're very square and quite contemporary, and the claw hammer was a big thing in those days. I think there's a few examples of that up in Anchorage that some of uh, other architects got into and uh, that I saw myself. I
1: have a feeling when I stop talking to you that I'm going to have a whole long list of things that I didn't previously know about that I'll have to check out. But (laughs) doesn't it always seem like it's kind of a crapshoot in terms of buildings that survive? Ones that seem really worthy end up um, getting knocked down because, as you say, they're in the the way of uh, something bigger that they want to build on the same site. But it, it just seems like it's a a, a complete factor of chance what survives and what does not.
2: Well, there's regret in Pasadena. We touched on this last time with the Green and Green residence that they designed called the Blacker House. And that was torn down, and they did the furniture. And Green and Green were one of the first uh, to get involved with electric light fixtures and ceilings, and they actually designed that into the ornamentality of of the overall interior. And uh, Wright did that as well, but uh, they were amongst the first. Maybe it got into that. But they tore down the blacker house, and now they're trying to collect all the parts, the furniture, the lighting fixtures. <laughs> they want to get it back again, and it's too late, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you, you got to try, I guess. Worth Worth a try. <laughs> but, yeah. It, sounds, yeah, it sounds like kind of a well, impossible uh, task.
2: When we were in Washington, D.C., the AIA made sure that us students got to be exposed to all of the buildings that are of note uh the capitol building and the new senate building then the washington cathedral was uh, getting completed we didn't do the uh the lincoln memorial but we saw it and didn't go up in the washington monument but it was really exciting to have the narration it was uh, a narrated tour and it was really interesting for um uh, someone who's trying to expand their concept of architecture. And afterwards, I took the train to New York on the Pennsylvania Railroad and arrived first thing in New York City and Pennsylvania Station and went up on the street. It was bitter cold, but it was Thanksgiving. saw the crowds were gathered already in the Macy uh, Thanksgiving parade. And I hate to tell you this, but you probably don't even know what this is, but howdy-doody. <laughs> And Hopalong Cassidy were on floats there, <laughs> and, and uh, you t- If I say that to someone today, they don't. They think I'm nuts. They don't even know what I'm talking about. Oh,
1: I know what you're talking about. It was maybe a couple of years before my time, but I I know who you mean. Sure.
2: <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Bud and I, who is uh, the guy also there with me, we walked and saw the Lever House, which was skidpoints in Maryland. And, uh, of course, the uh, Seagram's building, which is under construction, all beautiful. It was, The sun was coming up over the East River, and that was just golden. It was a wonderful thing to see. I had a, my older sister was married to someone who had a relative who was a television producer, and he asked us to come down to his place uh, at the Gramercy Park Hotel and, and have Thanksgiving dinner. And Bud and I were in sweaters and car coats and he took he made it uh, some kind of a deal with the maitre d there that we would be allowed to go in looking like hicks from Idaho in <laughs> our car coats and sweaters and we had the most beautiful thanksgiving dinner in the gramercy park hotel there had many many courses and i'd never seen anything like that in my life but that was quite memorable and yeah, you're probably a lot
1: more comfortable than the people wearing the uh, suits.
2: <laughs> yes, ties. <it> <laughs> and afterwards, we got on the train and went to Chicago. And there was a person there who uh, was uh, met us at the train uh, downtown there. Walked up to us, looking for us, and said to me, "The first sentence I ever heard of this kind of back talk, He says, "What time it is? The train is leaving already," and I didn't quite. I wasn't able to process that right at first, but it ended up that he was going to take us on a tour and wanted to make sure we didn't miss the train. So he took us to Oak Park, had arranged for us to go through some of Wright's early work, and then uh, drove us down to um, Lakeshore Drive, where we went into the towers that were quite the rage in those days, and the Prudential Building. And late that night, we left for... um, Spoke spokane washington and uh, that was just one impact of a trip as far as architecture was concerned i think about it quite often think about these people when we were having a beer bust in washington i was a piano player and i always was asked to play the piano and then Sybil moholy came and sat down on the piano stool next to me and then when it was time to have the beer bust, we just turned around on the piano stool there and we talked and she was asked something about if she could tell, she was, she taught at Pratt Institute in New York at that time. And if she could tell bad or good students, this one of the crazy people there who were sitting on the floor and probably too much beer, uh, ask her that question. And she, I was wearing a red tie and she turned to me and grabbed the tie out of from my coach, he says, I could tell an architect by the tie he wears. <laughs> Every, the room just went into laughter. That was kind of an interesting moment for me. I was a shy when I was a, that young. I. Didn't quite know what to make of it, but she was a very kind lady.
1: I think the casual trend uh, finally caught up with me. I never wanted to wear a tie or even a shirt with uh, with buttons and a collar. You know, <laughs> I remember walking around in um, Livingston's office in the 80s, and uh, I couldn't even be bothered to have shoes on. You know, <laughs> it was where were you? Oh, in, in Anchorage at uh, uh, Tom Livingston's office. But um, the, uh, the
2: uh, oh, Tom Livingston, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a personal um, point of pride with me that I haven't had a necktie around my neck for probably more than 20 years now. <laughs> anyway. Well,
2: I think Steve Bettis wasn't he involved with one of the offices you work? Yeah. Uh, he worked for me for some years, and he was barefoot and drove a Volkswagen van and sometimes had a ham hanging over his drafting table. I had to get after that guy a lot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, strange personalities in these offices. I'm sure we'll be uh, talking more about that. So when um, once you've collected all of these influences and uh, you're back in Anchorage, was there really much use for a lot of it? Or uh... Oh,
2: yes. Well, there was several things that really came to use. Uh, I love the idea of green and green exposed structure beforehand you, you someone have to put your mind in that era and I grew up in houses when uh, you didn't see the structure whatsoever the rooms were pretty well plastered and when I was younger I my mom and dad built a home in New Mexico uh, out in the country which is pretty much a that vernacular and had vegas and things and i was down there every day after school just watching it it fascinated me but i didn't know how buildings went together and i was probably in the sixth seventh grade
1: you know just uh just button in here, and um, it makes me think of um, Frank Gehry. He he has a lot of interesting quotes. I actually like the way that he talks about the projects more than the, his projects themselves. But one thing he said that stuck with me all these years is that he he thinks practically any building looks really good while it's under construction. You know, yes. He, he, even <laughs> I have an
2: agreement to that. It's too bad we have to finish them. <laughs> yeah, that's,
1: that was his, his point exactly. Like even the, the most uh, pedestrian plane apartment building, like when it's just framed, you go by and look at it, and, and man, is it interesting. And then they you know, put the sheetrock on and a bunch of tan stucco on the outside, and, and it, it just like ruins the whole thing.
2: <laughs> well, that's the thing that is so phenomenal about some of Maybach's work. And green and green. And these guys were born in the 1860s, but their buildings just exposed the structure, and you had a great sense of visual security from that. And of course, uh, the Green brothers had studied metalworking and the joinery. They used pegs and ornamental iron to kind of tie things together. A lot of that was influenced, uh, kind of spurred on by the Japanese architecture in which uh, they had seen at that 1893 uh, Columbian Exposition, which was actually in commemoration of uh, Columbus discovering America. But it was that exposed structure was something that just really took with me. And of course, uh, being around the house under construction down in New Mexico, another influence. But I think of out of that trip, Charles Warren Collister, who's uh, I think he was born somewhere like in the 1917, uh, he started his first office in 1950 in Tiburon. And interestingly enough, when I studied or just read up on him, he didn't get registered till 1988 in California for architecture. It sounded kind of like me, you know, you do all this work and getting registered is kind of a very difficult thing to come by. It didn't take me 30 years or whatever, how many years that was to do it. But uh, he w- he's another one who didn't get registration right off the bat. But the one thing...
1: He couldn't avoid it any longer?
2: No, they couldn't. But the one thing that Charles Warren Collister did was, or said, that really sticks with me, that architecture has to respond to the client. The geography where it's built and the materials at hand and reflect the lifestyle that's housed within. And he loved the handcrafted aesthetic that Green and Green and Maybeck did, which was uh, kind of was the American arts and craft. But his architecture was different in some ways. He used a lot of concrete, uh, it was, Somewhat the vineyard vernacular, the redwood was very prevalent in Tiburon and California in those days. And he'd have these beautiful columns with redwood beams across them and not just paneling, wood paneling, but he'd have broad areas of wood grain that would be cordoned off by battens, horizontal and vertical. And it was a beautiful look. And uh, I loved his architecture. He's w- well worth having as an influence. Uh, I don't know if he influenced me that much, but I did use a lot of concrete in, uh, in my work in Alaska.
1: It seems like green and green have really aged well. Like that yes. work still looks beautiful today and you, you can it's dialed in. You know, it's a, some sort of like a pretty basic um, feel that uh, people still relate to very well.
2: Well, it is gorgeous, and I occasionally drive by the Gamble House in Pasadena just to see it again. And it, it, I love the deep overhangs and, and the strength of it. It's it's really splendid.
1: It's decorated without being applied decoration. Kind of the structure has the you know the the treatment to the beam ends and the everything that those guys do the joinery that you were mentioning.
2: Yes, both of them. Uh, were in the American arts and crafts movement. The bungalow I think is something somewhat uh, that term is attributed to Green and Green. But uh, both Bernard Maybeck and Green and Green are just so inspiring.
1: Well this is a good place to pause so let's do that. We'll come back in uh, half a minute and talk some more. Sound good? Sure. Heavenly
3: shade Of night will soon surrender the setting sun I count the moments, darling, till you're here with me Together, at last, at twilight light Here, in the afterglow of day, we keep our eyes at last at twilight time here in the afterglow of day
1: we keep our- you dear listener are tuned in to alley audio vision i'm the host with the shiny pompadour and velvet tech shoes clark Yarrington. in the segment you're about to hear ralph continues with his early anchorage life and times including a couple of important friends. All right. Before that little pause, we were talking about Green and Green and some other influences that you managed to uncover in your travels and apply to projects back here in little old Anchorage, Alaska.
2: Yeah, that was all of my on my propeller trip to Alaska. And of course, in those days, Alaska was somewhat known as a cross uh, refueling crossroads of the world. There were a lot of there's a lot of European Asian influence up there. Great restaurants, uh, chefs, and workmen and uh, artisans. The propeller flights were long, and noisy, and I didn't know exactly how long I'd be up in Alaska. I always had a ba- uh, or a, a airline ticket in my back pocket home, uh, just to make sure that I could get out of there if everything failed. And when I was, I worked for Manly Mayer, as we've already covered, but uh, there were only about four or five firms that you could get employment with up there, and one was Crittenden. There was another architect who was supposedly the quintessential residential architect. His name was Roland Lane. I only met him once at one meeting, and of course Manly Mayer, and there was another one up there. You call it Stuck Again Heights, but Basher was where the is known up in the hills that were more or less on the north side of the Chugach there towards uh, military bases, McIntyre. So there weren't too many places you could go if everything failed. So you almost have the sense either you're going to fly home or have to go to either one of those people to get another job.
1: So circa 1960, there were only five uh, major architecture firms, or major, I guess they were all smallish in, by today's standards. But then, you know, it it only took maybe uh, 10, 15 more years to where there was double and then triple and then four times as many. So it gives you some idea of how uh, quickly things started happening here in the in the 60s. A lot more new people.
2: Well, statehood started it, and then, of course, jet travel just changed the face of Alaska. You could get in and out of there, and with somewhat the uh, time changes, you could get to Anchorage before you left Seattle, uh, it, was a kind of well, it wasn't that moment. fast, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, with the time changes, it was. But the Anchorage was uh, not large when I first went up there with those firms. And Roland Lane had a very small firm, but had a profile. But if you wanted to get another job, most people went over to Crittenden's office. And I did meet McIntyre on a couple of occasions. Anchorage was about 35,000 people, I was told military bases, two of them included, included the dogs and cats also, I was told. So it was not large. It was easy to uh, get some kind of a profile up there.
1: Yeah, don't forget to count those canine units in the census. They're part of the family too, as we (laughs) know.
2: The uh, boarding house that I went to had a number of boarders there. One of them was named Walt, who I'll get to him in time, but uh, The first Christmas I was there, I couldn't go home and I didn't know anybody up there. I I just decided to stay at the boarding house. And the boarding house madam there said, well, if you do, you're going to be the only one here and you're going to to have to cook your own meals and blah, 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 turn off the stove, lock the doors. And so I, I really did that and was Christmas Eve was sitting in the living room there and... Uh, that would be
1: fun to be around a big building like that where there's normally <laughs> lots of people there and you're the only one there. I would have totally done that.
2: Noises are, are loud and often when you're by yourself in a house like that in the middle of a parking lot. But uh, maybe the thing to do is get back a little bit to this moment of being in that house because a little bit before that, in the office itself, there was another guy who came up there from Texas, named Charlie Blomfield. And he was a very interesting guy at that time. He uh, wasn't hired before he went up. He drove up in a big black Cadillac four-door he, with his wife over the Alcott can. He had, um, I think, four kids at that time with a pregnant, and I think Adelaide, his wife, is pregnant. Uh, he wore these Beautiful silk suits. And I don't think he had a parka the first day. He had a straw hat on. (laughs) But he did winterize. It got too cold. But uh, he was a nice, nice fellow. I I loved, I lived in Texas during the war. And I love that accent. And still have many friends in Texas. But during, as I, well, I guess I'd mentioned that my dad had died a couple of years before I went to Anchorage. At that boarding house, my mother decided that she was going to go to california uh, where she she was a surgical nurse and she took a position there sent my stuff in many boxes to the boarding house and that somewhat cinched my staying in anchorage regardless what because it wasn't just one box it was my room at that house was emptied and i looked through all that thing she'd never uh, she didn't send Art Troutner's uh, little trust choice that he made for me. <laughs> she thought it was a bunch of junk. But it was all the things she thought I needed and would want. And the, uh, before that, the boarding house lady was furious about that. And I didn't know what to do with it. She was and mad because office, just
1: because all those things were there and there was like tons of boxes in the hallway or something?
2: Well, I had been... St- staying at different places uh, in the summer when I was involved with uh, the the 1200 L Street. I stayed up there for the summer and had drafted that first house, the six-sided house. And then soon after, the guy who hired me had asked me if I would house-sit his house down in Westchester Flats while he and his wife went to Europe, and I did. So I was in and out of that boarding house. By the time that The Hamiltons return, I really didn't have a place to go but the boarding house. And I hadn't a car. That kind of sets the scene where I was when all those boxes were there. And why Walt plays an important part, because she didn't have a private room for me. I had to share a room with Walt, who was a cowboy and very different than me. But he liked talking to me. When I was sitting in that living room Christmas Eve... Feeling sorry for myself, I heard the back door open and I heard these footprints coming through the linoleum in the kitchen, through the linoleum in the entryway. And I saw this hand coming around the door casing and I thought, I'm going to get killed. What is this? And it Forgot was Walt. locked to lock the door, huh? <laughs> the <laughs> doors were double locked. Oh. It, was a, it was a kind of like a, a Halloween surprise or something, but it was Walt, and he'd been out shopping all day. His big thing every Christmas, he was a benefactor uh, to a native family, and he would buy gifts for this uh, widowed lady and her kids. And there were about four children there, uh, three girls and a boy. And he says good, you can help me wrap presents for these people. He says, I've got a bunch of wine here. We can drink wine and wrap presents. And we did all night. And I was so sick by morning. I don't drink all that much. And I was on the bed and he said, i right, ready to go. He says, it's time to get over there. And I said, Walt, just let me die. Just leave me alone. <laughs> and he says, you're going to go. Anyway, we went to this native house, car full of, Packages that we'd wrapped all night. And as we wrapped the packages, he would tell me about each of these kids. And we drove up to this house and the windows, the kids were in the windows and when they saw him drive up, and they ran out there in the snow and helped us carry packages in, screaming and hollering and with happiness. I've never seen anything like it. And uh, we went in there and these people, there was no selfishness, no fighting, uh, just joy. And I hadn't seen a Christmas morning like that in my life. Afterwards, they served breakfast to us. Um, that was one wonderful, unexpected Christmas gift for me.
1: It's funny how sometimes things work out really well with no planning.
2: Yes, it was wonderful. But the bef- little before that, Chuck K- uh, Blomfield and uh, Adelaide had invited me to, out to dinner at the chart room in... Um, the Westwood Hotel, and it was one beautiful restaurant in those days. While we're sitting there, they told me that they had investigated me, and they had...
1: Sounds kind of creepy. uh, Yeah,
2: right. (laughs) But I didn't know what they were driving at. They said they had rented one side of a duplex down there on I Street that had a full basement, and one end it had an apartment with stairs to the outside and asked me if I would uh, sublet that from them. I told them about the boxes, and it just happened like some kind of miracle. And I can remember, he says, well, I'll just come by in the morning, and we'll pick up with my big old Cadillac, pick up those boxes, and take them over there, and you can pay me uh, storage space until the first of the month if you take the apartment. And I did that. And I lived with them for about uh, four or five months. But that was a godsend, another gift for Christmas for me.
1: Yeah, I knew that uh, man too, Chuck Blomfield, in his later years, even did a little work for him sometimes on projects he was working on. And uh, he had a lot of um, great pithy quotes to that i remember that you know i won't go through all of them because it, it it'd get uh tedious but i i, I like the guy i learned a lot from him i learned how to um lay out rooms and think about um the whole building at the same time and for there to be a really efficient use of materials you know he he probably didn't have very much um waste on his projects at all everything was really uh utilitarian four
2: by eight yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> two But well, Charles had no pretense, really, about him. That's one thing I like him, because so many architects get so in love with themselves. And when I was in Seattle at Bassetti's office, I worked with all these graduates from Harvard and Yale and blah, blah, blah. And they were the most conceited people in love with everything they did and their approach to design. And I really didn't like it. The rain was one thing, but that aspect of humanity doesn't appeal to me much either.
1: Yeah, that was one of Blomfield's quotes. I remember he said something like, uh, I liked architecture too, but I had eight mouths to feed.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one thing I made up is kind of a quote is, I hate a room full of architects. <laughs> just, you go to a convention and it's just, you don't want to go. But those... The
1: convention you described in uh, D.C. in 55, that sounded uh, like it was fun you know sitting around in a circle and uh, and talking about trends and things if the, if it was more like that i'd i'd want to go more than i cuz it is you know, like sitting around with people who you already know and uh, you're looking for the door
2: yes well i really enjoyed that experience then people were students they were kind of not filled with all that stuff that people learn in college I interviewed a lot of people for my firm later on and there were certain colleges I just decided I wasn't gonna hire because one guy came from a college and he sat down at the conference table with me and he said this I have come to interview you not for you to interview me what no <laughs> that's what he said to me <laughs> that's he carried not a how purse works <laughs> he carried a purse to it I I had a employee that saw him come to, into the building in, in my office. And, and after he left the office, he came running in there, and he says, uh, that's how come Rome uh, fell. He, he, he just was going on and on and on uh, about this guy, but I've never had quite that kind of ego to witness in my life. But one thing I'd like to say about Blomfield is he has the most fabulous kids, at least the four that I knew. Uh, Bridget, Susan, Debbie, and Tony. They are just so cute in those days. And uh, I became part of their politics in those few months I lived there. And they always were uh, coming to make sure I wasn't dead or something. (laughs)
1: How long was it before you got a place of your own? You talked about a lot about subletting and house sitting and, uh, you know, sharing the house with some other people.
2: Well, the very first summer, I leased from the associate uh, Ken uh, or uh, Chuck Kendall's girlfriend on the 13th floor. And that was a, really a great experience having that view and drafting away from that six sided house. And then right after that, the Associate who hired me in Seattle, Bob and Betty Hamilton, asked me if I would house sit their home at Westchester uh, uh, Westchester Flats, and I did that. And then was the Blomfield experience. Uh, after I had fled back to the boarding house, and then from there on that spring, I took an apartment, my own apartment, up on the thirteenth floor of the L Street. But on the east side, I didn't look over the inlet, there was a gal named Millie Lazich that was introduced to me by Chuck Kendall's uh, girlfriend Cora, who lived at the L Street, who's a long time resident of Anchorage, who worked at the Denali Theater as a, uh, in the ticket booth. And at the telephone company, she held down two jobs and, up and and did that up until just the latest years. She always called me Yogi because I made the boarding house lady feed me yogurt and liver for breakfast every morning. And I was into taking care of myself, had tiger's milk, the whole works from Adele Davis's book. <laughs> and, but, and, and by the way, she still is, Billy uh, Lazich, and still calls me Yogi when we're talking on the phone. These people uh, seem to have a long life in the L Street apartments. Uh, when I was there, it, actually, it was she who got me involved to see Eisenhower when he came to Anchorage in the '60s. But I'm kind of ra- running around again. I uh, there's so many things to tell. Uh, but what happened was that Walt went to Millie at the at the Denali. I had gone to see Dial M for Murder with him one time. He wanted to see that, and Millie remembered, or he remembered Millie, and went up to her and asked how he could get a hold of me. So it ended up he decided he needed to move into an apartment, and I said, well, you can't move into my apartment. It's too small. We have to get two bedrooms if, you know, you want a room in an apartment with me. So we, I did that. I uh, undid that lease and hired a got another lease, and had two bedrooms. and In the same that building? That was in the same building, L Street, yes.
1: And we should say, too, for people that know Anchorage a little bit, that when you talk about the Denali Theater, it's the one that was downtown before 1964. It was at 4th and Barrow, I think, right?
2: It, it was on Lower 4th, and it could easily been of Barrow. But it went down in the It's store practically a whole story down into it. Yeah, after that's right. And they,
1: they took the, the sign and maybe some of the seats over to Spinard and built the new Denali Theater over there that is now the uh, Beartooth. Anyway, details. Is um, that a theater? Yeah, they um, they did a pretty nice remodel of the old Denali Theater in Spinard and turned it into a um, like a restaurant uh, brew pub type thing and even built a, uh, a balcony into the auditorium, which it didn't used to have.
2: I think somebody at what later visit, when I was up in Anchorage, they uh, J J Brooks took me there mm-hmm. to eat one time uh, some years back. I think I I just didn't know that was the residual. Yeah, it's the same place. Doesn't seem it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like it,
1: but it is. <laughs> okay, well let's uh, take another break here. It's time to organize your notes a little bit, and we'll come back and
2: talk some more. Uh, You know, I'm not using notes, really. Right now, here's a gentleman
0: who had a big hit some years ago, uh, all night long. I think you'll remember Robert Parker. He's got one that's busting all over the country right now. It's called Barefootin'. Here's Robert Parker.
4: Everybody get on your feet. You make me nervous when you're in your seat. Take off your shoes and pat your feet. We doing a dance that can't be beat We barefootin' We barefootin' We barefootin' We barefootin' Went to a party the other night Long tall Sally was out of sight Threw away a wig and a hot sneakers too She was doing a dance without any shoes She was barefootin' She was barefootin', she was barefootin', she was barefootin', hey little girl with your red dress on, I bet you can barefoot all night long, take off your shoes and throw them away, come back and get them another day, we barefootin'.
1: I hope it is no kind of conceit to say this episode is unfolding in just the way I had hoped. In the third segment, we break into the draft copy of Ralph's book and read some of his great descriptive writing, Sailing Through Glacial Fjords. At one stop, Ralph contemplates the buildings of Old Valdez, Alaska. And we end the segment with a less-than-heroic story when Ralph's figure-drawing class instructor decides to correct his drawing technique in front of the class. More talk and the wrap-up now on Ellie Audio Vision. All right then, before the break, we were still talking about architecture that influenced you, and then we kind of went into talking a little bit about jumping around from different apartments in Anchorage, and we talked about Chuck Blomfield and his family some. Yes. So what else was happening in those days? We're still uh, in the early 60s, I think.
2: Uh, well, back in Manley and Mayer, I've talked about Ray Salmay and him leaving projects with me. But when I received the commission for the six-sided house, I had no idea how I was going to do it or where I was going to do it. I just knew I was going to do it. So I decided to go on a trip and think because I needed some time away from work and, and from everything's happening so quick to me. So I took the...
1: I've found since I've been independent that I have to do that on about an annual basis because there's there's no way to do any long-term thinking during the day when you're just sort of uh, trying to keep up and putting out fires and stuff. It's really valuable.
2: You need to have your mind unfettered with uh, interruption. And I have always loved to concentrate. And that's one thing I dislike about offices or people around when I'm doing something is just getting interrupted. But I did go on this trip, and it was a train ride from Anchorage uh, to Whittier and a boat trip from along the um, glaciers, uh, College Fjords in Prince William Sound and Columbia Glacier uh, to Valdez. And it was Just a wonderful trip, and I even learned things on that trip, but I gained another client. And I don't know, we had talked about this one time, uh, what a beautiful voice you have, and it said that you used to be in radio and that uh, maybe you'd like to uh, read a passage from my book about that trip.
1: Sure. So um, I think the part that I should read here uh, starts with a heading that says, Out of the Blue.
2: That's the spot, I believe, Uh, I'm looking at Columbia Glacier.
1: Out of the blue, the stately edge is cold and quite close. No end to it, looking right or left, takes almost a full backward to see the top. Columbia's largesse renders our Valdez-bound vessel as a bobbing toy. Water crackles about ice masses floating about deep-cut clefts. A bottomless rumble disrupts the blended calm of blues emanating from glacier, water, and sky. This formidable frozen river sheds a vertical ice shaft. Our boat maneuvers escape from the angular plunge before us. Deck passengers rush inside the cabin for a same impulse. Safety, warmth... The couple who've embraced and leaned against the deck's bulkhead rail the whole time now sit inside, entangled sideways on a back banquette watching through glass. Moving away, the spectacular ice, noise, and splash are distant. An older tourist lady approaches the couple in a somewhat catty tone. Are you two newlyweds? Oh no, we've been married for years, the gal answers with an accent. We've children and are going to build a house. The man and wife then reconvene, their affectionate abandon. Earlier today, the trip navigated College Fjords. We've traveled along shorelines the whole time. Afternoon, at 4.30, the boat changes course for Prince William Sound's open water. Land more distant, we drop anchor and wait. A far boat approaches off starboard. The smaller craft arrives, comes around to portside. Lines exchange, linking the two crafts. Containers are placed on board with the announcement. This is fresh Alaska shrimp for a cocktail hour. Showmanship and anticipation prevail. Inhabitants dissolve, and conversation animates everyone on board. Are you a tourist? The lovebird ignoring her husband for now addresses me in a voice louder than all others on deck. No, I live in Anchorage. Oh, for how long? Just over five months. A chichaco. You're young, bet you attended school. Others close in about us, probably because she's loud. Hoping to regain imagined lost dignity in this group's presence, No, I'm with an architectural firm in town. Her husband takes over. Do you do houses? Right now I'm designing one off Upper Huffman. We've been looking for someone to draw up our place. It's also near Upper Huffman. We want to build the daylight basement first since I'm on airplane mechanic pay. We'll build the main house on top in the next two or three years. Could you do that? Yes, says that someplace from inside. (laughs) We're George and Joan. Give us your name, where we can reach you next week. House talk and shrimp overtake deck watching our trips course curved up from open water unnoticed into a confined passage. Heavy timber ascends both sides. Waterfalls in numbers pour from granite heights. Early evening festivity quiets once farther forward narrows after we pass a possible wider escape out. Tensions rise. Our craft angles a slow, long right headed for tall, rocky cliffs. Coming about, we slip through onto a dramatic long inlet mirroring Alaska's sky. Rhythmic mountains, pointed tops, and downslopes meet out the bay's length. Mountainsides captured in sun glow their distance away in less intense hues into haze. Sea-level valleys intervene right and left. Higher, enigmatic, snowy peaks interlock with sky. Straight off the bow, a village rides a distant shoreline. In late night, we dock at Valdez. Colored and white wood structures step the incline from water's edge up into town. A rust-corrugated metal roof caught in direct sunlight screams contrast against a steep lush green slope above. The main community is built on a level plain, an extent that continues on behind abutting and separating steep mountains against the town. Walking toward the hotel, we pass several short blocks filled with small scaled houses. Their exteriors vary in color palette. Many have surprising Victorian detail. The tour guide explains that early day fish canning, mining gold and copper, homes were ordered from catalogs, Smaller pre-cut materials accommodated shipping constraints from stateside and Valdez's abbreviated construction window. Plain storefronts lined sidewalks both sides on the straight Main Street. Painted signage cover upper facades stair-stepping up and down which conceals steep roof gables. Plain board and ornamental trim along tops, edges, around windows and doors are different in color than the buildings. Total effect is past-era Frontier Town. You know what's... uh, What's great about all that is you're talking about old Valdez before 1964, none of which is still there. What? No. You can walk along where it used to be and um, get a sense of it. You know, there's like little hunks of concrete and dock timbers and stuff that you can still see, but no more buildings. And uh, I'll tell you what, it just feels like the saddest place on Earth, practically.
2: Well, right after the quake, and we'll get into this every metal building vendor was up there and they really got their hooks into rebuilding Valdez. And there is more about that in my book later on. But the thing about this passage is that the idea that buildings were shipped up there just really was another influence on my thinking because the reason they were because the short building construction period in Alaska. And we'll get into this as we develop my story in architecture in, in Anchorage because I did a lot of this and had trouble with the labor unions too. That's one thing about this one chapter that I thought would be valuable uh, in this uh, podcast. But I would like to go back now to uh, Manny Mayer and I'm just going to give you a list of people that I worked with there. Ken Maynard, Roger Spiker, Art Bunnell, Dick Mayo were all people who had a tremendous influence uh, in my quest in architecture in those days. The uh, secretary that spoke to me when I first entered Manny Mayor's office from the boarding house the first work day was Polly Yakovic, who later married someone in Juneau. And she was the one who said these great words, you must be the new boy, which <laughs> I did not like. <laughs> but she married this guy, and the secretary that was there was named Yvonne Esbenson, who later, for 47 years, became Hickle's private secretary. She is still a great friend of mine, too. And I wanted to get that in there because uh, these characters come in and out of my life. <laughs> and the book there was <clears throat> i don't know how many more minutes you have in this segment but i could five go or on six to, uh, at banley and mayor i was since the lowest of low there uh, i was asked to go measure frank reed's building which is next to the 4th avenue theater tom's radio had a big presence on 4th avenue and in there was mabel rewalk who was a character amazing person. But I had to ask her for the how to get the key, and she, I had to go upstairs to Frank Reed's office, and I got the key, and that's when I was on the second floor. It was a, a strange place. Uh, I think Senator Bartlett had an office up there, but it was a floor without, it had a very casual layout as far as hallways. It was hard to measure, but I was on my hands and knees, and dust and spiders and measuring this and that and these beautiful female legs came up next to me and I looked up and there was this smiling lady with long blonde hair and a ponytail and beautiful eyes named Helen Gibney, and she took me over to Studio One that she and her husband owned, which was there on the second floor, and asked me to come to their house for dinner and that's where I met my first client. Their apartment was over the Chichaco bar there. That kind of started my tenure in individual architecture, but she also taught, had held what I would call nude drawing classes up in the studio one. And she asked me if I would if I drew, and I said yes. And she says, "Well, you've got to attend. You've got to." And I did go up there, and Wastley Summers was the instructor. And that's when I met Eddie Lum, who is an interior decorator up there and a longtime friend. But there is more to talk about uh Eddie Lum and Wesley Summers, but we can take that up uh when we continue next week.
1: All right. Sounds good. Well we've got a four or five more minutes uh this time, oh. so
2: Well, maybe I'll just continue on. Sure. Uh, Are you you familiar with Wassily Summers, who is an artist? Work was quite well known in those days.
1: What was the work like?
2: Uh, It had a lot of, I believe he worked with oils, but it had a lot of uh, strong colors. Been some years, but he had quite a presence and an excellent artist, by the way. But he taught that course uh, the nude came out and he had us all programmed to draw this pose. But uh, he said, you have to do this in one one vertical line or or one vertical movement. So anyway, her back was turned to us and I was drawing with pastels with the end and he could not he looked around at everybody in there and he says no 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 you do not you have to draw with the broad side and he says i show you i show you get up get up get up like that and so he he got down on on these straddle stools with where we we're drawing and he took my pastel and he put his hand in with this force he just lunged against the drawing board and the pastel kind of Buttered out of his fingers, to flew about ten feet and landed in this guy's lap, and that was Eddie Lum, and that's when I met him, uh, in Anchorage. And later on, I, I, there are so many things about Eddie I could tell you, but he was a guy who got the Velvetex um, concession up there in Anchorage, and he, he Velvetexed the four-door Cadillac that was in this matte color. It just blew your mind to see that driving around the streets. <laughs> and all these women... Wit-
1: that sounds like a course of, uh, you know, how to draw like him, more more than how <laughs> yes. to draw. But
2: it, 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 All these women would go to these parties up there, and they'd get Eddie to velvetech or high-heeled shoes to match their gowns and things. And I don't know how many years that went on, but he probably did pretty good <laughs> coloring these shoes with this uh, blow-on velvet <laughs> on everything.
1: It's nice to have a marketable side skill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I do think uh, we we should wrap it up this time. I, I I'm not totally sure about what time we started, but I think it was about an hour ago. So this is a good time to stop. And we'll and we'll take it up again next episode. And as usual, wonderful speaking with you, Ralph.
2: Oh, and I can say that right back at you, Led. All right. Talk to you later. Hey, boy.
4: Hey, boy. Hey, hey. What you doing, man? Cut it. Hey, what you going? What you going to do? That ain't the piece we supposed to play. Come on. Well, I guess I better get on in here
3: with it.
1: Some of Ralph's work is shown on his website, ourtechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph is working on a book about his time in Alaska. This has been Allie Audiovision, Episode 3, recorded March 7, 2020. Thank you for listening. Keep those comments coming. So long, dear friends.